0: Lord, we do thank you for your love. We thank you for your word that we now get to explore. So Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our collective hearts be beautiful and acceptable in your sight. You're our rock and our redeemer and Jesus is in your name we pray. Amen. Today is a really brief, very simple two verses in scripture. And in fact the two verses are what we call a synonymous parallelism. They do, what they do is they say the same thing twice to get the point across solid. And um, very, very important. This, this comes out of the Apostle Paul's last letter. If many, as many of you know, Paul was an unwilling convert to Christianity, uh, knocked off his pony riding to Damascus where he was busy killing Christians, and all of a sudden he becomes a radical follower of Jesus, and he's leading many to Christ and is eventually arrested And because he's a citizen of Rome, he keeps ducking a death sentence, and he winds up appealing to the emperor in Rome. His appeal is denied, and at this point he's under guard in the basement of the palace. So the people who are deciding his faith literally are walking floors over the top of his head. He's under heavy guard, and as he writes this letter, 2 Timothy, he may be as soon as two or three weeks away from his execution. He was his life was ended. He was martyred by beheading. And if you read part of Second uh, Timothy, another part of it, he says, already my life is being poured out as a drink offering. And he even offers the imagery of his head being severed, which, which is a gruesome thought. But he's really looking into the eyes of his last days, looking into the eyes of the Jesus who's going to receive him eternally. And so when Paul shares in Second Timothy, these are his last words. These are his parting shots. This is his, go get him, the ball's in your court now. And so he's handing something off to Timothy. He's handing something off to you and me that's very, very important. He's very emphatic about it. And we get to look at it today in 2 Timothy um, chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. And I'm, I did two translations here. First, I'm going to read the New International Version What you heard from me, keep as a pattern of sound teaching with faith and love in Christ Jesus. Guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you, guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. And then I also tried to do a translation of this from my own work with the Greek to try to make it a little bit more literal from the Greek so you see how the languages interact with it. This is the Randun Revised Version here. Firmly hold to the sound doctrines that I have taught you, remaining full of both faith and love. Closely guard the treasure entrusted to you all. Yes, indeed, guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit that lives in you all. Okay, so if we want to go about mining this text, and people occasionally ask me, how do you study the Bible? I read it and I'm not quite sure how to figure it out. Well, I'm going to show a little of my arithmetic today and, and maybe give some Tips on studying scripture and finding out what the, what the author of that scripture wrote thought. Many of us as Christians read the Bible and say that's what it said to me that's very dangerous. When we read the scripture like the New Testament we want to know what Paul was saying to someone and then we want to base our understanding off what Paul meant not what our breakfast or Cheerios in our tummy told us to interpret it as today or something right? So one of the things we do is we actually study how sentences are put together and sometimes we'll find that two sentences like we have today are actually the same statement over and over again, and they help modify and clarify each other and make it crystal clear for us what we're all about. So sentence one here, the subject is all of you. That's the other thing. How many of you, when you read the word you and you're reading the New Testament, when you get a chance to read the New Testament you see you, think it's talking about you? Raise your hand if you think that. Come on. Okay. The grammar of this entire book, even though Paul's addressing Timothy, is second ter- term plural. So anytime it says all you, it means all y'all. I don't know how to say that for my Texas friends. It means all y'all. Okay. So this text opens with a subject, all you all are the subject of the dress. That's all of us here. The verb is, the first one is hold on. And, and it's written in command form, kind of like grasp, cling to, um, and what are you going to what are you going to cling to in this? The 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 adjective, the modifier is you got it. That's correct. Um, the is sound doctrine in sentence one, and it seems pretty clear. But then there's the second sentence that actually makes this thicker and richer. And the noun there again is all you all. So already we know that these sentences are parallel because they have the same subject. But the verb in the second center, second section is philaso, which in the Greek means guard. It's the same word that was used that sheep were out guarding, shepherds were out guarding their sheep at night when an angel of the Lord appeared to them. It's also a word that um, the Roman guard that guarded Jesus' tomb, when he was put there, was told to philaso keep guard over this Tomb, and if something goes wrong here, you all die. Jesus rose from the dead, and they got to be dead, as we understand the tradition and teaching of the church. Because people that didn't want to believe that Jesus was actually the resurrected think somehow these guys fell asleep at the switch and and let him out. Right. So this word this word philoso or guard is even stronger than the first one. And then what is it that is is being guarded? And what is said here is we're guarding a treasure that's been given to you, a treasure that's been given to you as a trust. And then the the adjective at the end is to do that with the help of the Holy Spirit that's in you. So in the first sentence, he says, do it in love and faith. In the second sentence, yeah, do it in love and faith, but you're only going to pull that off if you're empowered by the Holy Spirit that's in you that raised Jesus from the dead and makes all of our lives new. And now that you do some solid grammatical work between these sentence, sentences, there's something in here that's precious, that's been given to us, and the Holy Spirit has empowered us to take care of it, and it's a treasure. Okay, putting everything together, we're going to guard this thing, this, trust, this treasure that we've got with the help of the Holy Spirit. And that begs the question, what is the treasure? I want to put up a little picture here. This is an ancient strong box. Trusts and treasures were kept in things somewhat like this. I had a more ancient one. Mark pulled this one out, and it's a, and it's a good one. And, and there's an idea that there's something literally handed us that's complete and packaged, and, and we're to guard it and keep it. And when I was a kid, there was a TV show called Treasure Hunt. I don't know if you guys remember that. Now, the game shows, Vanna White, all that stuff, that's all at night, right? When I was a kid, those were daytime. So when you were home sick from school, you watched endless, endless game shows, right? Which actually made you want to go back to school again in a couple of days. And you couldn't figure out how your grandma could watch those shows day in and day out for six hours in a row, right? But one of the shows on there was called Treasure Hunt, hosted by Gene Murray. And what they would do is contestants would vie in answering these questions. And then the person who got the most points had to go to one of these three treasure chests and open it. And they all had a treasure, but one of them was a whoopah, 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 grand pie's treasure. And you got this unbelievable prize travel around the world, everything in the Spiegel catalog. Another prize would be a $50 gift certificate, right? So you want, you want the big bonus box chucked out with gold. So when it comes, To the treasure hunt here of the gospel. When you break open this strong box, what's in it? Gene Murray would have said at this point that the person opened their box Johnny, tell them what they won. And Johnny would say it, why, it's a dirty, rugged Roman execution device called a cross upon which humiliated, humiliated powerless, whip-stripped, and agonized, wretched losers are pinioned and mocked until they're unable to lift themselves to breathe, and eventually they suffocate. Now, Randy, back to you. Um, (laughs) this This is the image of what Paul wants us to protect. The treasure is the cross. Again and again... Paul locates the gospel not in the teachings of Jesus, not in just the story of the resurrection, but in the cross, and the cross alone. He said, I seek to know nothing among you but Jesus Christ and him crucified. And if you read Paul in all the New Testament texts, he talks about the word of the cross, the message of the cross, the preaching of the cross, the scandal of the cross, the foolishness of the cross. And we are so insulated and comfy, and crosses tend to be for us a little bit of a, of a decoration. Anybody got a cross on today? You know? and, and we don't see it as this brutal, most humiliating, most dehumanizing execution device probably invented in the history of the human race. It would be hard to top. And the Romans used it only for the total scum of the people they disliked or found offensive in their Roman Empire. No Roman citizen could be crucified. It was too lowly. And yet this cross is declared by Paul to be the essence of the gospel. It's a treasure. It's the articulation of all sound doctrine, the cross. And it's really interesting because on this cross, we see Jesus experiencing the agony and suffering of all the people who've been oppressed and lived on the margins in humanity. On the cross, Jesus identifies with all the cruelty that we heap on each other, and he receives it in himself. He feels it, and he lives it. And in fact, at one point where we really know that the cross has taken its full effect, Jesus hangs in desolation. And he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God himself, the judge being judged on the cross, experiences absolute separation from God and that's the heart of this word sin the law of sin and death in the world is a law of separation from God and Jesus experiences that fully And our creeds tell us he descended into hell we don't know what he did there we're just glad it was a short visit and on the third day he rose again but this Jesus of the cross is central it symbolizes our identification and God's identification with the worst of what humanity has to offer itself, in a sense, to offer God. And so while God is literally destroyed by human sin, God destroys human sin by conquering it in Jesus on the cross. And this image is so powerful. To the Jews, crucified people were accursed. In fact, there was a law within the Jewish laws of the Old Testament, that you didn't hang a person by a rope or nail a person to a tree. It was, it was forbidden. It was, un, it was a totally unaccepted way to take somebody out. The sophisticated Romans, this was the grossest, worst thing that you could get. In fact, the Apostle Paul, unlike James and, other, uh, and Peter and other apostles, was spared the cross and got to be beheaded. That's just to give you an idea. That's the comparison of how of how awful the cross was, um, but on the cross, where Jesus is treated as an outsider, and sin and death have their have their way with him, he was a full obedient and willing participant participant in the action of God, a triune God that's present there and who saves us. And that's where we get the song "Amazing Grace," how sweet the song that saves a wretch like me. That 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 God would take our place, and that, that this would be the symbol that central our faith. And, and I want to talk about that a little bit. You know, Jesus' life and teachings and miracles and his statements for justice and righteousness were powerful. He always had the right word. He could take on the powers. He could comfort the absolute weakened and most broken. He could restore the dignity of a woman with uh, with bleeding issues that she 'd suffered with her whole adult life and had been humiliated and and been an outcast he he did all that he he raised the dead he he fed the hungry, he walked with the poor he he loved everyone who touched him and Jesus' life and ministry and teaching become nothing less than a book of little therapeutic moralisms, unless everything that he is and did was backed up by this action on the cross. Likewise, the resurrection. We love as Protestants to live in the resurrection. Sometimes I have Protestant friends and ministers who I've heard chide my Roman Catholic and Orthodox brothers and sisters who wear a crucifix as opposed to an empty cross. And they always make lines like, well, I wear an empty cross because Jesus isn't on the cross anymore. Sorry, kids, the Roman Catholics have got this right. The reason they wore the crucifix is to remind us what is absolutely central to the historic proclamation of the Christian faith. It's the cross. The resurrection validates the cross. But the happy, clappy Jesus is risen that we love to celebrate as Easter doesn't happen without the cross. And when it happens, it validates the cross and further validates everything that Jesus ever taught. The cross, although it appears grisly and morbid, is God's absolute judgment of sin and death. And it's the establishment of a brand new humanity in Jesus. The cross judges sin and unleashes God's love and mercy and grace on a broken humanity so that we can get well again. This is why Paul could also say in his later days, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God to salvation to all who believe. So, the cross is central to that. It's for you and me. It's for you and me to understand and live in as we live in a broken world. To so allow us, as we identify with the Jesus on the cross and the scandal of what he bore, for us to bear the pain and suffering in the world of people around us. And when Nancy and I drove under the Ballard Bridge last night after doing a wedding, you know, we're all dressed up and everything. We've had a a wonderful day with wonderful family, and it's been a loving, warm event. And we drove under the Ballard Bridge, coming back to my house, and two or three people deep underneath the bridge embutment are people living in squalor in this piles of stuff. And I was thinking about this morning's message and driving by there and just seeing the cross. And also the invitation from Jesus, Randy, you can't look at them. You are them. You need to enter into the suffering with them. And this is what God does on the cross. And I know sometimes in our modern sensibilities, this seems violent and morbid and icky. And it is icky, but in the most beautiful way you could possibly imagine. And so when you guard the treasure that's in you, remember that it's located in the cross. And it's that cross that makes sense of everything else Jesus did. And it makes the resurrection make sense. We know what he's risen for as a triumph over the forces of sin and death and decay. Thanks be to God for our Savior and for this gospel that is so absolutely vivid. And as you look at this um, Brinewald crucifixion, by the way, I, I just want to say this has been called, uh, it was written, it was done about 1650. It's been called the most graphic and grisly depiction of the uh, crucifixion ever as a, a a German uh, artist. I believe Matt, you know, Grunemwald stuff, don't you? Yeah. I'll get you later on all the details, but, but he did a number of these for display in churches. And one of the things you see is the, is the pulling out of Jesus body, the stretching to the very tensile edges of what a human body can tolerate as he was on that cross. So for you and me this morning, as we come to the Lord's supper for us to remember, that these symbols of bread and the cup are not weakling symbols; they're not um, they're not sentimental little feel-good things. These are these are symbols of what it cost God and God's own self to bring you and me back to Him while we were wandering around in sin and death. Lord, we thank you for your cross as the central proclamation of the gospel, help us to guard it, help us to live the cross with all of its pain, with all of its hope, and with all the power of resurrection that's in that. And Jesus, we thank you that you've gone before us and you've modeled this kind of love and obedience. If we could walk just in a measure in that, what a world this would be. So by the healing and curing power of your your table this morning, with this cup and this bread, give us the courage and strength to live boldly in you and for you. I'm going to invite uh, elder Jeremy Jacobs to come down and join me here in serving the Lord's supper on the night in which our Lord was betrayed. He took bread and he broke it saying, this is my body broken for you in the same manner after supper. When he had given thanks, he took the cup and he said, this cup is the cup of the new covenant. This is my blood Shed for the forgiveness of sins. Whenever you take this bread and drink this cup, remember me and my death on the cross until I come back to get you, one and all of you, in redemption and love and in the culmination of all the things in human history. So this is a waypoint on our journey this morning. Come, take the cup, take the bread, and look at the cross and remember what a treasure it is for you. Come to the Lord's table.